Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review a few pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss the man who may have prevented World War III, deciphering the Rosetta Stone, and a major battle won by Alexander the Great. The events took place on September 26th, September 27th, and October 1st. September 26, 1983. Soviet Air Force computers report a nuclear missile from the United States is heading toward the Soviet Union. Stanislav Petrov, a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defense Forces, was an officer at the Serpukhov 15 bunker near Moscow, which housed the command center of the Soviet early warning satellites, codenamed OKO. Petrov's responsibilities included observing the satellite early warning network and notifying his superiors of any impending nuclear missile attacks against the Soviet Union. If notification was received from the early warning systems that inbound missiles had been detected, the Soviet Union's strategy was an immediate nuclear counterattack against the United States, launched upon receiving the warning, specified as law in the doctrine of mutually assured destruction. Shortly after midnight on September 26, 1983, the bunker's computers reported that one intercontinental ballistic missile was heading toward the Soviet Union from the United States. Petrov considered the detection a computer error, since a first-strike nuclear attack by the United States was likely to involve hundreds of simultaneous missile launches in order to disable any Soviet means of a counterattack. Furthermore, the satellite system's reliability had been questioned in the past. Petrov dismissed the warning as a false alarm. Accounts of the event differ as to whether or not he notified his superiors after he concluded that the computer detections were false and that no missile had been launched. Petrov's suspicion that the early warning system was malfunctioning was confirmed when no missile arrived. Later, the computers identified four additional missiles in the air, all directed towards the Soviet Union. Petrov suspected that the computer system was malfunctioning again, despite having no direct means to confirm this. The Soviet Union's land radar was incapable of detecting missiles beyond the horizon. It was subsequently determined that the false alarms were caused by a rare alignment of sunlight on high-altitude clouds in the orbits of the satellites. In explaining the factors leading to his decision, Petrov cited his belief and training that any U.S. first strike would be massive, so five missiles seemed an illogical start. In addition, the launch detection system was new and, in his opinion, not yet completely trustworthy. The ground radar failed to pick up any supporting evidence after several minutes of the false alarm. Petrov underwent intense questioning from his superiors about his actions. Initially, he was praised for his decision. General Yuri Votintsev, commander of the Soviet Air Missile Defense Unit, was the first to hear Petrov's report of the incident, and the first to reveal it to the public, and he stated that Petrov's actions were correct and duly noted. Petrov himself stated he was initially praised by Votintsev. He received no reward, 
According to Petrov, this was because the incident and other bugs found in the missile detection system embarrassed his superiors and the influential scientists who were responsible for building it. So if he had been officially rewarded, they would have been punished. Petrov said he could have never, ever imagined being in that situation. He was reassigned to a less sensitive post, took early retirement, and eventually suffered a nervous breakdown. Petrov is often credited as the man who saved the world. Here's my take on the Soviet false alarm. I'm glad Mr. Petrov was the officer on duty. That could have been a really, really bad day. September 27th, 1822. Jean-Francois Champollion announces that he has deciphered the Rosetta Stone. Jean-Francois Champollion was a French scholar and a founding figure in the field of Egyptology. Partially raised by his brother, another noted scholar, Champollion was a child prodigy. As a young man, he was known in scientific circles and spoke five languages. During the early 19th century, French culture experienced a period of Egyptomania, brought on by Napoleon's discoveries in Egypt during his campaign, which also brought to light the trilingual Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone is a dark stone slab from the Ptolemaic dynasty inscribed with the same text in three different scripts, Demotic, Hieroglyphic, and Greek. The stone was carved in 196 BC and is believed to have originally been displayed within a temple. Scholars debated the age of the Egyptian civilization and the function and nature of hieroglyphic script, which language it recorded, and the degree to which the symbols represented speech sounds or ideas. Many thought that the script was only used for sacred and ritual functions, and that it was unlikely to decipher since it was tied to philosophical ideas and did not record historical information. The significance of Champollion's decipherment was that he showed these assumptions to be wrong and made it possible to begin to retrieve many kinds of information recorded by the ancient Egyptians. In 1822, Champollion published his first breakthrough in the decipherment of the Rosetta hieroglyphs, showing that the Egyptian writing system was a combination of phonetic and ideographic signs, the first of its kind. In 1824, he published a text in which he detailed a decipherment of the hieroglyphic script. In 1829, he traveled to Egypt where he was able to read many hieroglyphic texts that had never been before studied and brought home a large body of new drawings and hieroglyphic inscriptions. He was given a teaching job in Egyptology, but only lectured a few times before his health ruined by the hardships of the Egyptian journey, forced him to give up teaching. During his life and long after his death, intense discussions over the merits of his decipherment were carried out among Egyptologists. Some faulted him for not having given sufficient credit to the early discoveries of Thomas Young, accused him of plagiarism, and others long disputed the accuracy of his decipherments. However, 
subsequent findings and confirmations of his readings by scholars building on his results gradually led to the general acceptance of his work. His decipherment is now universally accepted and has been the basis for all further developments in the field. Consequently, he is regarded as the founder and father of Egyptology. Here's my take on Jean-Francois and the Rosetta Stone. Egypt is very interesting. Uh, the discovery of a huge ancient stone inscribed in multiple languages is so fascinating. I'm sure there's a lot we still don't know about Egypt and that whole area. And I have a feeling it's much older than we realize. All the landmarks, the culture, I believe it's been there for quite a while. October 1st, 331 BC. Alexander the Great defeats King Darius III in the Battle of Guagamela. The Battle of Guagamela, also called the Battle of Arbela, was a battle that took place between the army of Macedon under Alexander the Great and the Persian army under King Darius III. It was the second and final battle between the two kings. The fighting took place in Guagamela, a village along the river. The area today would be considered northern Iraq. Two years before the Battle of Guagamela, King Darius III lost the Battle of Issus to Alexander the Great, which resulted in the capture of his wife, his mother, and his two daughters. Alexander's victory at Issus had also given him complete control of the southern Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. After the battle, King Darius retreated to Babylon, where he regrouped with his remaining army. Alexander fought at the Siege of Tyre the following year, which lasted over six months and resulted in another victory. Alexander then fought again at the Siege of Gaza, which significantly decreased the number of Persian troops even more. King Darius tried to dissuade Alexander from further attacks on his empire and made three attempts to negotiate with him. The final attempt included all the territory west of the Euphrates, co-rulership of the Archimedes Empire, the hand of one of his daughters, and 30,000 talents of silver, which would be tens of billions today. Parmenian, one of Alexander's chief military generals, reportedly said to him, If I were Alexander, I would accept what was offered and make a treaty. With Alexander replying, So would I if I were Parmenian. In the end, Alexander refused the offers from Darius and insisted that there could only be one king of Asia. Alexander was methodical and relentless in the pursuit of King Darius. After crossing the Euphrates, he followed a northern route instead of a more direct southern route to Babylon. The northern route made it easier to forage for supplies and his troops would not suffer the extreme heat of the direct route. Alexander then crossed the Tigris River and marched along the bank for days until he reached Guagamela. King Darius chose a flat, open plain where he could deploy his larger forces, not wanting to be caught in a narrow battlefield as he had two years earlier, 
where he could not deploy his huge army properly. The Persian army heavily outnumbered the Macedonian army. The estimates say Darius had 50,000 to 120,000 soldiers, and Alexander had less than 50,000. While Darius had a significant advantage in numbers, most of his troops were poorly trained and had low-quality weapons. The only respectable infantry Darius had were his personal bodyguards, the 10,000 Immortals. The battle began with the Persians already on the battlefield. Darius deployed his finest cavalry, consisting of archers, horse guards, war elephants, and chariots with blades attached to each side. He placed himself in the center with his best infantry, as was the tradition among Persian kings. The Macedonians, outnumbered over five to one, were divided into two groups, with the right side under the direct command of Alexander and the left side under Parmenian. Alexander began by ordering his infantry to march in a formation towards the center of the enemy line. The Macedonians advanced with the wings echelon back at 45 degrees to lure the Persian cavalry to attack. While Alexander's men battled the Persian infantry, Darius sent a large part of his cavalry and some of his regular infantry to attack Parmenian's forces on the left. During the battle, Alexander employed an unusual strategy, which has only been duplicated a few times. While the infantry battled the Persian troops in the center, Alexander began to ride all the way to the edge of the right flank, accompanied by some of his cavalry. His plan was to draw as much of the Persian cavalry as possible to the flanks, creating a gap in the enemy line, where a decisive blow could then be delivered to Darius in the center. This required almost perfect timing and maneuvering, and Alexander himself to act first, forcing Darius to attack. The Persians opened the battle by attempting to flank Alexander's far right. What followed was a long and fierce cavalry battle between the Persian left and the Macedonian right, in which the latter, being greatly outnumbered, was often hard-pressed. However, by careful use of reserves and disciplined charges, the Greek troops were able to contain their Persian counterparts, which would have been vital for the success of Alexander's decisive attack. The Persian cavalry rode along the line and came into conflict with the front men of Alexander's array, but he still continued to march towards the right and almost entirely beyond the ground which had been cleared and leveled by the Persians. Darius, fearing that his chariots would become useless if the Macedonians advanced into the uneven ground, ordered the front ranks of his left wing to ride around the right wing of the Macedonians, where Alexander was commanding, to prevent him from marching any farther. Once this was done, Alexander ordered the cavalry to attack. Alexander's army was overwhelmed and took heavy losses at the start of the battle. After weathering the early onslaught, the Macedonians' light cavalry moved with Alexander to the center of the battlefield. They were able to spread out and move quickly, rendering the Persian chariots almost useless. As the Persians advanced farther and farther toward the flanks in their attack, Alexander's soldiers filtered in from the back. He formed his units into a giant wedge, with him leading the charge. This large wedge then smashed into the weakened Persian center, taking out Darius' royal guard and mercenaries. The Macedonian cavalry and Alexander himself pressed on vigorously thrusting themselves against the Persians and striking their faces with spears. 
Darius realized he was in serious danger. He broke away from the battle and fled with the rest of his army following him. Alexander was faced with the choice of pursuing and killing Darius and ending the war, or going back to the left flank to help Permanian and preserve his forces. He decided to help Permanian, and Darius escaped to the surrounding mountains. After the battle, Permanian rounded up the Persian baggage train while Alexander and his bodyguards pursued Darius. When he finally caught up to Darius, however, he found him murdered by one of his own commanders named Bessus. Alexander was saddened to see an enemy he respected killed in such a fashion and gave Darius a full burial ceremony. Filled with a seemingly endless rage, he then pursued Bessus. General Ptolemy of Macedonia caught up with Bessus and under orders from Alexander, stripped him naked, tied him to a pole with a wooden collar around his neck. Alexander questioned Bessus as to why he had betrayed Darius. Bessus said he and others did not feel Darius was a worthy king. Alexander was not satisfied with his answer. He ordered that Bessus' nose and earlobes be cut off, which was a Persian custom for those involved in a rebellion. Ancient reports contradict each other about the execution of Bessus. One historian says he was crucified in the place where Darius had been killed. Another states he was tortured and decapitated and a third says he was torn apart by recoiling trees, a style which, according to Persian custom, two trees are forced towards each other, with the victim tied in between both, and then the trees are released, causing an agonizing and drawn-out death in which the ligaments, tendons, muscles, and organs would slowly come apart as the trees straighten themselves. In the end, it was a disastrous defeat for the Persians and one of Alexander's finest victories. The Battle of Guagamela is regarded as the climax of a prolonged war between East and West, a war for over 150 years. The victory led to the fall of the Archimedes Empire and solidified Alexander's position as the King of Asia. Here's my take on the Battle of Guagamela. Alexander was a bad dude. Undefeated in battle and basically took over the world. I definitely want to read more about some of his other battles. And um, his final resting place is still a mystery. I think that's kind of cool too. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. September 27th, 1998. The internet search engine, Google, retroactively claims this date as its birthday. No, I'm not going to acknowledge that. And I'm sure it's only nerds at Google that would. September 30th, 2005. Controversial drawings of Muhammad are printed in a Danish newspaper. Oh no, can't do that. Uh, but obviously the newspaper wanted to create controversy and that's pretty stupid too. October 2nd, 
1971. South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Tu is re-elected in a one-man election. I um, read that only two other candidates dropped out and boycotted the election. Is, is that an election? Doesn't sound like it. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. See you next week. final attempt included all the Terry...